was a good-looking worship team today. And they sang all my favorite songs. Those are good ones. Let's open the Word of God, please, to Matthew 21, verse 28. Life of Christ, beyond A to Z, we're trying to look at some of the passages that don't fit directly into that A through Z system. And some of which are kind of obscure or especially hard to understand, so we're looking at, at that in this current series. In this passage today, Matthew 21, 28 through 32, let's call this the parable of the self-guessing, of the self-second-guessing, self I should say, of the self-second-guessing sons, or we could call it promises, promises, potential means you ain't done nothing yet. Uh, I know Ron remembers this. Nobody under 40 will even think this was possible, but for a long time, the only, if you're a baseball fan, the only baseball a game you could see on television, unless you lived in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles, was the game of the week, and Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese were the commentators for the, for the game of the week, and it was a huge deal. It's kind of like when Monday Night Football first started, that was a huge deal. Uh, to have the game of the week back in the late 50s, early 60s. And Dizzy Dean, who's a uh, very interesting guy, is one of the only pitchers, Tim, to win 30 games as a starting pitcher in a single season. So he was quite a good pitcher uh, when he was in his prime. But he used to say, you know, they talk about young prospects on Major League Baseball teams as having a lot of potential. If they didn't have any potential, Carson, they wouldn't even bring them up from the minor leagues. But Dizzy always would say, potential means you ain't done nothing yet. So, you know, when we make our promises, we need to follow them. God keeps his promises to us. We need to keep our promises to him and to other people. And we'll think about that in this passage today. But first, let's pray that we will be teachable to God's word. This will not just be information, you know, but we're going to move it to our hearts from our heads. You know, so it's conviction, right, Tim? So it's going to give you ammunition to live the Christian life with. And let's pray for those who protect and serve. You know, last week, our abstract thought warmer-upper was all about Ron Miller. You know, rumors about Ron Miller that are actually true. And that went over so well. And there's so many things that are true about Ron, I thought we would go back to that. So these are three more rumors about Ron Miller that are actually true. Okay, Ron can do 100 one-arm push-ups. That's pretty amazing. And when he does them, he doesn't push himself up. He pushes the planet Earth down. You know what? That's a mistake. I'm sorry. That was, that was a mistake. That's actually uh, a rumor about Dustin Wiley that's really true. I mean, he can actually do that. One, one arm push ups. Not, not easy. Yeah. Ron makes lemonade at least twice a week and he distributes it to his customers at Red Dirt Apparel for free and he only needs two ingredients. Number one, a little bit of sugar and a lot of bananas. It's not easy to make lemonade out of bananas. It's the kind of the premise there. But not necessarily funny, but it will definitely warm up your capacity for abstract thought. Am I right? Right, Sydney? Number one, Ron climbed Mount Everest in only 15 minutes, which is unreal. And he spent 14 of those minutes building a snowman at the top of the mountain. That's how good he is. Let's rapidly go to the, uh, the reason we're here doing this right now. Right, you know that. Yeah, we're going to look at the context. The context of this seemingly kind of 
not super major part of what the Lord's doing here the last week before the crucifixion, but it's all inspired and it's all worthwhile. Look at the context and we'll look at a parable he teaches and then the pronouncement he makes from the parable. So let's start with the context in the life of Christ A through Z. You remember the overall flow of the life of Christ is the first half of his public ministry. He's, he's uh, speaking to large crowds. He's doing big miracles. He's presenting himself to the nation of Israel as the long-awaited promised Messiah. He's doing so many miracles and gathering so much interest by the average person. The leaders of institutional Judaism who are going to lose uh, their profession if they bow down and worship him and accept him as Savior, they have to explain his miracles away. They don't deny them. I mean, you know, atheists today can say, Tim, Jesus didn't do miracles. He was either a sleight-of-hand artist or his disciples made it up later. or They're just so dumb and dense. They thought he was doing miracles, but he wasn't walking on water. He's walking on rocks under the water, that kind of thing. You can explain away Jesus' miracles today if you want to, if you want to right? Did you notice that his enemies didn't say, he's not really doing miracles. He can't do miracles. What does he do? What do they do? They impugn the source. What do they say about Jesus' miracles? satanically uh, driven, right? They say he's not the Messiah. He's a satanically possessed false prophet. And he does miracles, but by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. So that's the Pike's Peak. Now, David's actually run up Pike's Peak, so he can picture this especially well. But I always thought that's the tipping point. After that, the whole complexion of the ministry changes. Rather than getting the word out as widely as possible, he still does some miracles. He still has crowds, but they tend to be thinning out. Uh, he prepares the disciples for what's going to happen after the crucifixion. And he doesn't specifically tell them he's going to be killed. He, he alludes to it a couple of times before, but he doesn't say specifics about the cross until after the leaders reject him. So we're actually between U and V in this passage we're going to read. U was unusual upset, the cleansing of the temple at the end of his ministry, and then this will be on the event we're going to read about here, based on Harold Honer's chronology. This is Tuesday. This is on Tuesday before the Friday crucifixion. Okay, And the Lord knows this. The disciples are still thinking Jesus is going to kind of set up a political kingdom. But um, shortly after this interaction Jesus has that we're going to read about with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, he's going to go back to Bethany to spend the night, and he's going to stop on the Mount of Olives and teach what we call uh, V in the A through Z system. Vision of victory, the Olivet Discourse. The book of Revelation in two chapters is found in Matthew 24 and 25. It's called the Olivet Discourse or Vision of Victory. So this is the day before that evening he teaches that great teaching about his second coming. And we're just a few days before the crucifixion. Now let's think about the context in the book of Matthew. Because a lot of times, you know, even I'm tempted just to rip a passage out of context and read it and get what I can out of it. But we need to kind of back up a little bit. And if you go back, and I'm just going to summarize this now. But the first couple of verses of chapter 21, we're going to look at 21, 28 through 31. The first couple of verses there talk about an emotional but superficial recognition of Jesus by the crowds. This is Palm Sunday. And, you know, once you get a mob or a crowd moving, you get psychology and things that people will do they wouldn't do in, in any other context. And you got a lot of people kind of saying, Hosanna, the Messiah is here, but they're thinking the Messiah is going to take over the government and kick the Romans out. They're wanting a political savior, not a heaven-forgive-sin kind of savior. So we have 
great public recognition, but it's all superficial. The vast majority of these people will show up on Friday morning and say, crucify him. We want Barabbas, not Jesus. So that's Palm Sunday. The next day, Monday, Jesus comes into the temple and to the naked eye. Looks like the system's working great. There are big crowds at the temple complex, a lot of activity, a lot of money changing hands as they bind the sacrificial animals. And Jesus says, no, you know, this is a sham. Uh, they have perverted what this is supposed to be about, and he puts them out of business for the afternoon. Then, the next day, uh, he, on the way into Jerusalem, he sees a fig tree that has leaves, but no figs. And I'm not an expert on agriculture, but I'm told in the Middle East, the kind of fig trees they have there, when the fruit is coming, that's when they grow leaves. So if you see leaves on a fig tree from a distance, you're going to have figs there. But this was a fig tree that was sick, that looked good from a distance. It had leaves, so seeing the leaves means it's going to have figs. But when they got there, there were no figs. And he's saying, that's kind of what Judaism, institutional Judaism, is like. It looks good from a distance. If you're just in a helicopter looking at all the activity at the temple, the temple the Old Testament said you should build, uh, it looks all great. But Jesus says it looks fruitful, but there ain't no fruit, right? Then... He interacts with the spiritually dead leaders of Judaism uh, and teaches them parables about their spiritual apostasy. They're pretending to be righteous, but they're something totally different. In fact, they've totally rejected the Messiah when he's come. So we're going to look at the parable of the two sons or the parable of the two self-second-guessing two sons. So let's look at the parable, then the pronouncement, and we'll think about it. I'm reading from uh, the New American Standard. And you'd think we're going to start with verse 28, but we're not. Let's go back to verse 23 to get some context here, okay? Earlier, earlier this same day, Tuesday, March 31st, before the Friday crucifixion, when Jesus entered the temple courtyard, not the building, but the temple courtyard, the temple mount, we call it, the chief priest and the elders, who are they? They're the leaders of Judaism, institutional Judaism. The chief priests and the elders of the people came to Jesus while he was teaching the crowds and said, Who do you think you are? By what authority are you doing these things? All the things he's done Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, especially putting out the, uh, destroying the uh, temple uh, money-making machine for a couple hours a day before. But what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus said, I will also ask you one thing. Which if you answer that question, I'll tell you the answer to the question you've asked me. Um, the baptism of John, he means John the Baptist, was, was that from what source? Uh, from heaven or from men? They began reasoning among themselves. The leaders of Judaism. What did the leaders of Judaism do with John the Baptist, basically? They didn't mind him being handed over to a politician and be killed. And to whom was John the Baptist pointing in his ministry? To Jesus as the Messiah, and what did the leaders do with the claim Jesus was a Messiah? He's not a Messiah, he's a satanically possessed false prophet. So, the Lord is kind of forcing them to come out of the closet, admit what they are and where they are. So he says, before we interact on that, let me ask you a question. The baptism of John, the ministry of John the Baptist, was that from heaven, or was that a sham just for men? And they, who's they? the chief priests and the elders, the leaders of Judaism in, in public here, with everybody watching, said among themselves, you know, if we say John the Baptist was heaven sent, then Jesus is going to say, why, did you, why didn't you believe him? 
Because he's tell, told you I was the Messiah. But if we say for men, we fear the people. Because the people regard John as a mighty man of God. And they're not going to like that. So we've got to please the people, right? So Jesus answering them, said, or, or answering Jesus the question, John the Baptist, is he from heaven or from earth? Is he legit or not? They said, we don't know. <laughs> Are you kidding me? We don't know. That's called punting. When you ought to be going for a first down. He also said to them, neither will I then respond to your question because you're going to use that against me. Now here comes our passage. In that context, very antagonistic, you know, confrontational kind of thing where they're trying to make him look bad. He says, but what do you think about this one? This is a parable. A man had two sons, and the word son is not used there in the Greek. It's children. So these are adult children, but it's used as a term of endearment. A man had two sons, two children. And he came to the first son and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he, son number one, answered, I will not. I'm not going to do that, Dad. I'm going to go play golf today or whatever. But afterward, number one son regretted it and went ahead and worked in the vineyard. Verse 30. The man came to the second son, said the same thing. Go work today in the vineyard. And the son, second son, said, I will. Just give me a minute. I'll go out there. But he didn't go, Julie. He never went. Didn't go to the field. Here's the question Jesus asked. Which of the two did the will of his father? The guy who said no, but changed his mind and did it? Or the guy who said, yeah, I'll do it. Just give me a minute. It never goes. Forgets to go, you might say. That's the kind of thing that happens. Um, what do they say? They said the first. Uh-oh, they've just cut their throat. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that the worst kind of sinners in the Jewish religious bureaucracy thinking, tax collectors who work for the Romans and rip Jewish, Jewish people off, and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you, the leaders of visible Judaism, for John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. You did not uh, receive what he said. But the tax collectors and prostitutes, not all of them, but a good percentage of them apparently, did believe him after messing their lives up, but they came to him in faith, ultimately to Jesus in faith, because John the Baptist was all about Jesus. And you guys, seeing that, seeing those kind of transformed lives, did not even feel remorse afterwards to believe him. Yikes. You know, this is an amazing thing. You know, Jesus... Uh, uh, tries to hit the ball to the opposite field, to use a baseball analogy. You know, uh, in baseball, you're supposed to just kind of meet the part of the fat part of the bat to wherever the ball is, inside, middle, or outside, and wherever it goes, it goes. But some guys try to hit it to the opposite field. So as a right-handed batter, if I get a good rotation on the bat, I should hit it to left field most of the time. I'm going to get most of my power over there. But some people like Ted Williams, pulled everything, still hit 400, but they kind of knew the ball was going to that side of the field. Uh, a really smart player will hit to the opposite field or hit where the, he's pitched. And Jesus is not submitting to their conventions and their expectations of him. He's in total control of this thing. And he's saying, okay, uh, we can't deal with this first issue. You've punted, but who's doing the right thing? And trust me, he's using that parable to say, 
you guys look like you're saying yes to God. You guys are devoted to a religious profession. You've risen to the highest ranks of Judaism. You're in the temple all day long. Your job is, you know, to pray and count the money, basically, and stuff like that, and keep the worship services going. So you look like you've said yes to God, but you're not even in the ball game. But look at all these people that I've interacted with, average people who've come to faith, either through John or through Jesus himself, who've totally changed because of the grace of God. And they, trust me, they knew exactly what he was saying there. He was really indicting them and forcing them to, by answering that question, the first son who said no initially, but eventually came, he actually is using their own words to to uh, indict them. Now notice, look at the... Uh, the pronouncement in verse 31 and 32. He just asked the question, okay, who did the right thing here? And they said the first son who said no, but ended up going and being involved with the program. Jesus said, hey, you know what? Uh, tax collectors and prostitutes who believed are kind of like that son. They made a nice mess of their lives. They were saying no to God a lot early, but through the grace of God, they came to Christ through faith. Whereas the second son who said yes uh, to visible people who just saw that would say, well, he's the obedient son, but he never followed through. He never got with the program at all. Now, that's the parable, but there's a lot here. Uh, when he says, notice in verse 32, for John the Baptist came to you in the way of righteousness. What does that mean? Well, according to the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, the way righteousness was a familiar Jewish phrase for the way of God's will, the right way. What is the way of God's will or the right way to receive salvation and forgiveness of sins? Let me ask you this. Is it by merit, religion, works, and self-righteousness? Or is it a different way? Let's see what Jesus tells us about that. Look at Luke 18. This should sound familiar, because just about four weeks ago, we looked at this passage, and I love this passage, and for sure, Jesus didn't mind uh, kind of putting the truth out there so these religious leaders and everybody, if they wanted to know what he meant, would understand what he meant. He was not obscure, even though he uses parables uh, to make it impossible for some people to understand if they're going to use his truth against him. But look at Luke 18, verse 9. I love this passage, and whatever anybody tells you about salvation, make sure it's consistent with what Jesus teaches about salvation here, or you got a problem. Look at verse 9, Luke 18. And Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves they were righteous. The way of righteousness to some people is to be a good Catholic, or to be a good Jew, or to be a good Muslim, or maybe even to be a good evangelical. They just kind of embrace the thing kind of abstractly. That's not what it's about, you know. Now, Watch this. A lot of folks, all your neighbors who saw you come to church on Sunday morning and watching you leave, they're going to stay there and, and, and aren't interested. They're, they're probably thinking, well, Dustin and Angel are nice people, but I bet they think they're going to heaven because they're nice people and they go to church. And, you know, I don't really like church, so I'm not going to go to church. Uh, it's not about church attendance. It's not about good works, is it? Um, keep reading the parable. Jesus tells this parable about and to people who trusted in themselves. You can trust in the Savior or you can trust in yourself. That they were righteous, good enough on their own merit to go to heaven and viewed everybody else. It wasn't as good in their minds as they were with contempt. Boy, that's a bad thing. Some Christians have a very self-righteous attitude 
uh, on their baseball team because so many people cuss on that baseball team. You don't have to cuss. In fact, you don't have to do very much anymore to stand out in this culture. And I'm not talking about just middle school or high school people. I mean adults at Halliburton. If you are faithful to your wife, you're not looking at the girls as they walk past, you know, uh, in the hallway. You don't cuss. You show up on time, have a decent attitude, and actually productive. They're going to say, what's wrong with you? I mean, what's different about you? You know, you're just going to stand out without announcing how wonderful you are. Here comes the parable. Jesus teaching this. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray. We're back in the temple again. A Pharisee, what do you know about Pharisees? They were the most religiously strict sect, S-E-C-T, in first century Judaism. Uh, I've had a couple of people say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be a preacher because you've got to be good all the time. Uh, that's not really a qualification, fortunately. Uh, but uh, it's not about that. You know what I mean? Uh, our righteousness would be a reflection, a fruit of our salvation. It's not the root of it. Two men go up into the temple to pray. We might say a preacher today. But in that context, a very scrupulous Jew who has not just 613 do's and don'ts from the Old Testament. They've got thousands of rules they've added to the Old Testament. And the other tax collector. What do you know about Jewish tax collectors? Number one, nobody likes tax collectors under any circumstance because we don't have to pay taxes, um, especially the way our government tends to spend it and waste it. Number two, when the Romans would occupy a region, they'd have local uh, noble people, Jewish people, actually collect the taxes for them. And they say, okay, you've got this section of Galilee. We want a million shekels this year. But if you can raise more than that, you can keep it. So these are Jewish people working for the hated Romans who occupied the region with their army, who are ripping Jewish people off to make money for Rome and for themselves. And they're getting rich doing it. So these people were typically pretty immoral anyway, but they would have been really seen with total contempt by the average person. Two men went up to the temple to pray. A Pharisee, the average person would think, this is the guy who's going to definitely go to heaven because he's such a scrupulous Jew. And a tax collector, he's got no hope. Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. (laughs) That's the Lord saying that. He's not really praying to God. Probably out loud so everybody can notice how righteous he is. God, I thank you I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or like this this guy. Now look at that pathetic tax collector. Can you believe he'd even come to the temple at all? Who does he think he is? Right? Now, I think that's called pride. <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I fast twice a week. How many times did you have to fast a year under the Old Testament law? Uno. They fast twice a week. So that's what, 103 times more than you need to under the law. But they it makes them feel righteous, you know. It impresses people. And it's a good weight control thing, too, by the way. Um, but um, but the tax collector, who recognized his need and his inability to save himself, standing some distance away, was unwilling even to lift up his eyes to heaven in contrition, in true repentance, but is beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can, and I want you to. That's what that sounds like to me. What does Jesus say? I tell you, that guy, the tax collector, probably very immoral, definitely ripping off his people, despised by Jewish people, uh, like the Pharisee. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the Pharisee, the preacher, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. You can't save yourself by your good works. And how dare you look at the cross and say, I don't need that, or I only need a little bit of that, and I'll do it myself the rest of the way. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. So go back to Matthew 21, talking about the way of righteousness. 
John the Baptist came in the way of righteousness, but you did not believe. The problem was they didn't believe what he was saying about Jesus, right? Um, so it's not salvation by merit, works, and self-righteousness. The way of righteousness is salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. Now notice here the emphasis on believing, right? I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes, the worst kind of sinners, the folks that seemingly are saying no, no, no to God, uh, they'll go to the kingdom of heaven before you because you guys did not believe what John said about me or what I said about me. Uh, but the tax collectors and prostitutes, not 100%, but a significant number of percentage, did believe. And even after you saw that, you didn't believe. So he's emphasizing you know, faith here and believing, right? Love it. Now, since Jesus brought up the ministry of John the Baptist, and look at verse 25 again. The baptism of John the Baptist, uh, where's that coming from? It's not legit or illegit. Was that from heaven, from God, or just something he dreamed up himself? And the leaders of Judaism saying, we can't really answer that question because we're getting in trouble. If we say he was heavenly, he was of God, then Jesus is going to say, why did you not, what? Believe, right? So, boom, let's go back. The parable we're reading, verse 28 through 30, has these prototypical sons. Son one did what? When dad says, go work in the vineyard, what does he say? But what does he end up doing? Uh, son two says yes, but what does he end up doing? Promises, promises, right? Uh, this guy promises to go and he doesn't do it. Uh, the first son is kind of like, in Jesus' mind, tax collectors and prostitutes who believed. Because they made a mess, but then they come to the Messiah, Right? These guys seemingly, the leaders of Judaism, seemingly are saying yes to God by their vocation and their success in their vocation, but they're far from God. They see Jesus as a satanically possessed false prophet. So since the Lord brings up the ministry of John the Baptist in this context, in 21 verse 25, as we're looking at 28 through 32, which ends with 32, John came to you in the way of righteousness, salvation by grace through faith, not by self-righteousness and works. Let's think about the ministry of John the Baptist a little bit. And what it teaches us, especially about repentance or repentant faith. Um, go to Mark chapter 1, and um, let me just remind you, let's go to Mark chapter 1. In John chapter 1, letter F in the uh, A through Z system, following the input of John the Baptist, John, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel all believed in Jesus as the Christ. Okay, But look what John, how John... The Baptist ministry is summarized at the at its beginning in Mark chapter one. If you've been influenced by Church of Christ folks, this is going to be interested interesting interesting to you because the Church of Christ teaches unless they baptize you in one of their tanks, you can't go to heaven. John the Baptist, who wasn't a Baptist, he was Jewish, of course, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, Brad, how can you say you don't have to be baptized to be saved? I mean, it says it right here in the Bible. John was preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. you got to kind of diagram the sentence, okay? Baptism is an external symbol. You see that? What does that mean? What does that mean? It means I'm married, and I'm married to a particular person, right? If I take this off to play golf, am I still married? Yeah. Uh, am I still supposed to be a wonderful, loving Husband who's trying, working on that, you know, even on the golf course, which is hard sometimes because it's so painful to hit bad golf shots. 
But yeah, the relationship here is baptism is not connected to forgiveness of sins. What is is repentance, a particular kind of repentance to change your mind about your sin. You got it yourself. You can't fix it. And because there's a judgment coming, you need a savior. Okay, you can't trust in Jesus as a savior and not repent in that sense. Uh, forgiveness of sins is connected to repentance, not to the baptism. Baptism is an external system symbol of that. God sees the person's heart, and the moment they trust Christ, even when you're a young boy like Sidney was saved as a young boy, I was saved as a young boy, God knows that. I didn't get baptized for a week. I was saved for a whole week before I got baptized. Okay? Now, if you get baptized in Jordan River, you make extra points, by the way. But it's, the baptism doesn't save you. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. So anyway, that's what Mark says. So don't think it's teaching salvation by baptism at all, because the uh, forgiveness of sins is connected to the repentance in the heart, not to the baptism. But let's see what Paul says that Mark 1-4 means. Go to Acts 19. He should probably know, since he wrote 13 New Testament books, and in the midst of talking about Paul's preaching ministry, in chapter 19, we have this, verse 4. Acts 19, verse 4. Paul, the Apostle Paul said, John, John the Baptist, baptized with the baptism of repentance. Telling people to do what? Saving repentance and saving faith aren't two different things. They're the same thing. They're two sides of the same coin. They're not two separate steps. They're one thing. And you look at the book of Acts, and it's like Luke is going out of his way to make sure you know that. Let's look at this. Uh, flip fast if you want to. Just let me use the visual aid, but I'm going to try to flip because I like to see it in my own Bible so you know I'm not making this stuff up. But look at Acts 2.38. There's a lot we could say about that, but let's emphasize on just one aspect of that. Acts 2.38 is Peter preaching in Jerusalem 50 days after the resurrection. And what does he say? He says to a large group in Jerusalem, it's dangerous for him to be there. The same people who killed Jesus might kill him now, because they're still angry at the whole Christian movement. Peter said, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay? That's Acts 2.38. Luke, who's writing Acts under inspiration, talking about the people who repented, describes them a couple verses later, and all those who, what does it say? You look like I just shot your dog. Let's go back. The command is repent. Change your mind about your sin. You got it yourself. You can't fix it. And the Savior's the only one who can. Judgment's coming, so you trust the Savior. When Luke talks about the people that repented, he says, all those who believed the command to repent were together and had all things in common. Let's look at another one. Look at Acts 3.19. This is Peter a couple weeks later, still in Jerusalem. It's still... Hazardous to his health to be preaching Jesus in Jerusalem where just a few months before they crucified Jesus. And he says to the crowds in the streets of Jerusalem in Acts 3.19, Therefore repent and return so your sins may be wiped away. Right? That's Acts 3 verse 19. A couple of verse later, Luke describing the people who responded said, But many of those who heard the message to repent believed. Saving repentance is not ginning up enough emotion to impress God or something. I was very emotional that day I got saved. 
That's contrition. I don't think you'd say without contrition, but that's just kind of a, an emotional response to how great this is and how messed up we are. Saving repentance is changing your mind about your sin, yourself, and your Savior, and it's synonymous, just another way of describing active, receptive trust in Jesus Christ. And Luke uses it just that way, because he says, Peter tells them to repent, and the ones who repented heard the message and they believed. Look at Acts 10. This is nice, because we don't have Peter, we still have Peter, but we're not in Jerusalem anymore. We're in Caesarea. The first major stop on the tour was Caesarea, where the theater was on the Mediterranean. And this is where he encounters Gentiles. And guess what? The great Jewish Christians assume, well, you know, as, as Jewish people, we can believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved by faith. But Gentiles, they can't do that. They're so messed up. They're not under the Old Testament law. You know what they thought initially Gentiles, non-Jews, had to do to get saved, Tim? They thought they had to become proselytes. They had to join Judaism, submit to the Old Testament law and circumcision. And then as kind of proselytes of Judaism, then they could believe in the Jewish Messiah and be saved. But what does the Gospel of Matthew teach us? The Jewish Messiah is also the Savior of the whole world. Everyone who believes. You don't have to pre-qualify by becoming a Jew or a Baptist or an evangelical. Uh, anyway, preaching to Cornelius in Caesarea, the Roman capital, Peter says, everyone who believes in him, Christ, receives forgiveness of sins. Now this is the guy who said, repent in Acts 2. In Acts 3, and now he's saying believe. Is he changing his terms? Changing the offense here? No. They're synonyms. Now, we have a big problem. He tells these Gentiles, all they have to do is believe in the Jewish Messiah and they can be saved. So when he leaves Caesarea and goes back to Jerusalem, the Jewish Christians there are saying, are you, did you have food? Did you eat food with dirty Gentiles? You know, that violates the Old Testament law, at least the way we've understood it. I mean, and you told them they could believe and be saved? They had to become Jews first. And Peter defends himself in chapter 11, and he says, hey, who was I to stand in their way after they believed and uh, clearly had received the gift of eternal life? And then his accusers, Peter's accusers, say, oh, well then, God has granted the repentance that leads to life, even the Gentiles. Those two terms are used synonymously, right? Um no extra charge for this. It's not on the uh, not on the overhead, but uh, since we're trying to be comprehensive here, in Acts thirteen twenty three and twenty four, we've got Paul now, not Peter, first missionary journey, and he says in the synagogue in Antioch of Asia of, of uh, Turkey, we would say, or of Pisidian Antioch, not Syrian Antioch, from the descendants of this man. According to promise, God brought forth to Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John the Baptist, there he is again, had proclaimed before Jesus' coming a baptism and repentance to all the people of Israel. And through him, everyone who believes, baptism and repentance, which means they believed. You know, it's the same thing. Uh, repentance is changing your mind about your sin. You got it. It's your fault. Yourself. You can't fix it by being a good Jew, a good Lutheran, or a good Muslim. And there's judgment coming, so I'm going to trust Jesus as the one who took my judgment. That's saving faith. You can't trust in Christ without repenting in that sense. So he says, through Jesus, uh, anticipating Jesus, John had said, uh, had a ministry of baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And then later in that passage, Acts 13, verse 39, Peter, uh, Paul here in the synagogue says, through him, through Christ, everyone who believes, even Gentiles, Free from all things from which you could not be free by trying to keep the law of Moses or any other set of laws. That's no extra charge for that. Okay, Acts seventeen, 
Acts 17 is Paul's second missionary journey in Athens. Not a Jewish synagogue, but surrounded by a bunch of Jewish philosophers. And he starts not with the Old Testament, but with his creation and the universe. Because the Old Testament wouldn't be a, something they would understand. And he says to them on Mars Hill, and I know Danny's been to Mars Hill, I've been to Mars Hill, it's a real place in Athens near the Parthenon. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, not just wiping out the planet, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should change their mind about their sin, themselves, and their Savior. And some joined him, although the vast majority of philosophers weren't interested, they didn't believe in the resurrection, but a few people did join him and believed. Paul says, repent. Luke said they believed, among whom are Dionysius, the Areopagite, lived near, near the uh, Mars Hill area of Athens, and a woman named Demarius. I mean, think of Roger Maris, you know, uh, and others with him. Let's go back to where we started. John the Baptist. What did Mark 1, 4 say about John the Baptist? Jesus refers to John the Baptist. What does Mark say about John the Baptist? He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So you had to be baptized to be saved, right? The repentance is connected to forgiveness, changing your mind about your sin, yourself, and your Savior. Uh, if you've got five minutes, just take the person to Acts 19. Hey, Stan, that's the place to go with that one, because Paul's saying, let me tell you what that means. John had a ministry of baptism repentance telling people to believe in Jesus. These are not two different things, they're the same thing, right? So, what are we going to do with Mark one fifteen, where it says, when Jesus follows up the ministry of Jesus, Jesus said, repent and believe. And there is an equals mark, not a plus sign. Repent, that is believe. Let me show you my illustration. When I make them up myself, I'm so pleased with them. Uh, if I want Janet to come up here after the service, to tell her what a wonderful person she is. She probably already knows, but sometimes we don't tell her often enough. I might say, Janet, come over here. Would that communicate? I want her to come up here. Come over here. That's kind of like telling people to believe. Or I could say, hey, Janet, don't stay over there. Could I get her to come this direction? I say, don't stay over there. That's telling you to repent. Or I could say, Janet, don't stay over there. Come over here. Those are three different ways of saying the same thing, Right? Come over here means believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, what does Christ say in John 6? Uh, they say, what, what, what do you have to do to do the works of God to go to heaven? Jesus said, here's the work of God. Believe on the one God the Father has sent. In other words, me, right? Acts 16, what must, what must, we, do, what must we do to be saved? They asked Paul, what does he say? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he leaving out repentance? No, you can't believe without repenting in that sense. It's not two things, it's one thing. But you can say, come over here. Or you can say, don't stay over there. Or you can say, hey, don't stay over there, come over here. I'm saying the same thing, giving the same basic content three different ways. So come over here means believe. Don't stay over there means repent about sin, self, and Savior. And I can say, don't stay over there, come over here. Repent and believe. Now let's look at one more thing. Isn't it great when you see all these amazing things in these seemingly obscure passages? I love that. Jesus says, tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before these religious fakes. Now, how are you kidding me? You're telling me gross, immoral kind of people can get to heaven? Doesn't, isn't that contradicted by Scripture? I mean, I've read Revelation 21.8. But for the Kelly unbelieving, abominable, murderers, fornicators, that's the prostitutes. 
sorcerers, idolaters, liars, that's the tax collectors, their destiny will be in the light that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So what do you do with that? That's got to be a contradiction. Jesus just said some tax collectors and prostitutes are going to go to heaven. You need to understand the passage better. Listen, when you have two verses that look like they contradict, trust me, you don't understand one in its context or maybe the other one or you haven't fitted them together properly. In John, excuse me, Revelation 21, as we're talking about the eternal state, you have this list of unforgiven, all unforgiven murderers. You know any murderers in the Bible that are going to be in heaven? Tell me one. Moses, David, yeah. Uh, Judah, probably, right? Uh, Simeon and Levi. Uh, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters. And you might say, well, I haven't done any of those things. But have anybody here ever told a lie? Even a little one? If you lie about telling the lies, you'll lie about other things too. <laughs> That's saying all liars go to hell. But it means all unforgiven. Right? You've got to realize you're a sinner to go to heaven. Right? All unforgiven. Liars, right? So you got to realize that's what that's talking about. What do scriptures teach about this? Uh, when I read uh, passages like this, I think of John 3.36. Now, most of us think of John 3.16 a lot. But I love 3.36, which says, Whoever believes in the Son has everlasting life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, and the wrath of God abides on that person, right? Salvation is not something we achieve. It's something we must receive, right? It's not something we do for God, Something he does for us. I always like to ask, who gets the credit for your salvation? You know, James is a good guy. If anybody could earn it, James would be somebody who possibly could do that. But scripture says, you know, if salvation is by good works, Christ died needlessly. Why is God letting his son pay for our sins if we can pay for our own? We can't, right? So that's a good way to figure out where people are coming from. Who gets the credit in your salvation? Is it stuff you're doing for God? Is it trusting in what God has done for you in Christ? There's several ways you can mess this up. You know, we're supposed to trust in Christ alone, but all the major world religions are telling you trust in your own merit. And a lot of Americans think that's what Christianity teaches too. It's one reason they don't come to church, because it's too late for them, they think. Uh, According to Jesus, it's never too late. Tax collectors and sinners can come, right? Uh, Other people on the fringes of Christianity kind of blend the works of Christ, the merits of Christ in our merits, like can we kind of, it's a tapestry, we have to connect together. Fringe groups like the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses do that, but also so does liberal Christianity. If Jesus was a virtuous martyr that will motivate us to live great lives and will save ourselves by being good, um, progressive thinkers. Or you can go with what Jesus says audaciously, you know, it is finished, paid in full, you know, this is the work of God. Believe in the one God has sent. Um, this is the will of God that all who see the Son and believe in Him have everlasting life, and I myself will raise Him up in the last day. That's John six thirty. Uh, if righteousness, if plus righteousness is by our goodness, Christ died needlessly. Calvin said, "Nothing in my hands I bring; simply to the cross I cling." And there's that John three passage. And also we have in the Old Testament. The idea that salvific forgiveness, Abraham trusted in the promises of the Messiah, was made righteous, is infinite, okay? Tim, you, you do a lot of traveling, especially like the South, you went to South Dakota, right? And back, that trip back was interesting, wasn't it? 
But how far is the east is from the west? How far is the east from the west? It's infinity, right? Psalm 1 2 says, For the believer, on your first day, on your worst day, on your last day on earth, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he's forgiven or moved our transgressions from us. So take this to heart from Matthew 21 28 through 32. Just generally in life, don't make promises you can't or won't keep. I mean, the first guy says no, changes his mind. We'll give him credit for that. Other guy says yeah, and never does it or forgets to do it or gets too busy or we've had a crazy week. I have a person in my life who I'm related to who every week's a crazy week for him. You know, I mean, he ought to see the craziness I deal with. You know, daily. Sometimes it gets crazy. But uh, don't make promises you can or won't keep. Um, it's a lot easier to say you're going to do something and actually remember and actually do it. Don Sanukian, who's kind of a lesser-known Dallas Seminary prophet, was an amazing guy. It was very impactful in my life. I remember this was before we had cell phones or any high-tech stuff. And he told us in preaching the Bible, he was a guy who'd been a pastor for a long time. He said, the most important thing I take into the auditorium every Sunday, just beneath my Bible... Is this, and he pulled out a four by a, a four by six card, and people are going, "What? There's nothing on it." Like maybe your favorite Bible verse. No, there's nothing on it. He said, "Look, before, during, or after church services, people are going to say, hey, Pastor, next Tuesday at two thirty, the ladies need to be have the building unlocked. Can you do that for us?" He said, "I sure can. Pull out my card, write it down." Okay. Uh, somebody from Kiwanis Club says, "Hey, this Thursday we had a real speaker scheduled, but she can't come. Could you come at noon and, and speak for like 15 minutes to the Kiwanis Club?" So I sure can. I pull the card out, write it down. You know, he said that's the most important thing, except for my Bible. I bring out to him every week because he said you got to follow through on what you tell people you're going to do. How can they trust you with big things like everlasting life? They can't trust you with unlocking the doors for them. You know. So that, that always made an impression on me. Another general principle, I think, is it's not how and where you start, it's where you finish. I don't think these guys went into Judaism uh, institutionally to be corrupt initially. They should get corrupted by the whole bureaucracy, right? Whereas the tax collectors and sinners have made a huge mess of their lives, but where there's life, there's hope. Don't give up on anybody, right? Now, specifically in the spiritual life, the reality is very few people respond to the gospel the first time they hear it. Most of us heard it many times before they came to faith. Would you, can you think of somebody important in your life who heard it for year, decades before God opened the doors and turned the light on for him? Yeah. If we had, I remember people second guess my approach to Bob. I know I, no doubt he knew what the gospel was. The problem was not his head, his heart. Some people thought we need to do an intervention. Yeah, that's it. Hold him down and force him. You know, you know that'll work. Uh, we would never seen him again. That wouldn't have worked. And neither is it really biblical. I don't think most people reject the gospel a lot before they, by God's grace, believe in Jesus in repentant faith. Right? Changing their minds about the sin, the self, and the Savior as they actively, receptively trust Jesus Christ. So I'm, I'm just going to close this way. Evangelism is a process. And you may witness to somebody you work with, you know, for 10 times, 15 times, 100 times. And two years after you move, uh, their neighbor witnesses to them or they get dragged to church on Easter or they hear the gospel and believe. Now, nobody else knows you witnessed the guy 10, 100 times, but God knows, right? 
And at the judgment seat, who, guess who's going to get most of the reward for that? The poor dumb slob that actually did it a hundred times and lived the Christian life at work. The preacher, the evangelist, who got to see, it's like jumping over the one yard line after a 99 yard drive. They bring in a fresh running back and he makes the touchdown. But he's only been in one play, but he gets the, the stat. How many touchdowns he scored? He scored one this this week. How about the other guy that made the 98 yards to get there? He didn't make any touchdowns today. But he's the main reason they scored, if you understand. That's the kind of thing I see here. So evangelism is a process, not a point act. And, and I'm pretty sure not even the mom of the thief on the cross next to Jesus ever thought he'd come to faith based on all the bad stuff he had done. And then, guess what? He made it. The chief priests and the scribes didn't make it, right? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your amazing grace in our salvation. And we're so thankful that because Christ alone is the cornerstone, and because Christ alone is the Savior, and because salvation is not something we do for you, it's something you do for and in us. No one is so bad they can't be saved by grace through faith, and no one is so good they don't need to be saved by grace through faith. And help us to understand that and live consistently with that, because I think sometimes when we're a little too self-righteous in front of people, they get the wrong impression about what's going on here. We thank you for making and keeping your promises to us. I pray you'd empower us and motivate us to keep our promises to you and to other people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.